things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Please be seated. Uh, we are in our studies in the Confession of Faith, and today uh, we come to chapter 13, which is entitled Of Sanctification. Uh, if you need a copy of it, it's available in the back of your uh, hymnal, and that's on page uh, 677. Now, in recent weeks, in our studies through the Confession of Faith, we have been uh, looking at those things uh, largely outside of us, those objective realities of who God is and what God has done in history. Uh, there has been given some explanation as to how and why uh, we can come to faith in our Savior uh, matters dealing with uh, God's covenant and free will, of effectual calling, of justification, and of adoption. Again, those things are, are largely presented to us for our knowledge and for our comfort. But when we get into the subject of sanctification, uh, we begin to look at what happens in our own lives and our own reality in our own history, uh, when this work of God has been given to us. And we've made the statement many times that if God has done something for you, he's also done something in you. Uh, and if we are saved by grace through faith and the work of Christ alone, and we uh, gloried in some of that recently in an exposition of Ephesians chapter 2, by grace you have been, by grace you are, by grace uh, we only and ever will be saved, does anything happen to us and in us? So I, I could look at somebody, somebody who says, I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's an inner reality. It's something in their heart and in their mind. And you might say, well, uh, I have no way of determining whether or not that is the case. The Bible actually tells us that there are fruits that accompany that faith and that the presence or the absence of those fruits is by and large determinative of whether or not we believe or affirm that we or someone else is in a state of grace. So what I want to do in this hour, I want to first, I want to begin by just reading through. It's a relatively brief chapter. Uh, I want to read through it and then we're going to look together and discuss together eight realities that flow uh, from this particular teaching. Now, uh, in the past, part of the way I want to help engage you all is by asking people to read. Uh, I enjoy that, but we often get uh, somebody who's listening in, they say, I can't hear. Uh, and so for the sake of uh, other brethren who aren't able to be here, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to read uh, this section out of our confession. Paragraph one, they who are united to Christ, and I think we could add there, only they, and then, I'm not going to say all of they, but all of them. They, all of those who are united to faith in Christ, and only those who are united to Christ. They who are united to Christ, effectually called, that's been dealt with already, and regenerated, having a new heart, and a new spirit created in them through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection. Some of those new covenant realities we'll be considering this morning. 
are also farther sanctified, really and personally. Through the same virtue, that is Christ's death and resurrection, by his word and spirit dwelling in them. And now some beginning of explanation. The dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed. And the several lusts of it are more and more weakened and mortified. And they are more and more quickened and strengthened in all saving graces to the practice of all true holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Paragraph 2 deals with the basis of our spiritual warfare. This sanctification is throughout the whole man, yet imperfect in this life. There abide still some remnants of corruption in every part, wherefrom arise a continual and irreconcilable war, the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And then paragraph 3 deals with the progressive hope for the believer in the midst of this battle. Paragraph 3, in which war, although the remaining corruption for a time may much prevail, yet through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying spirit of Christ, the regenerate part does overcome. And so the saints grow in grace, perfecting holiness in the fear of God, pressing after a heavenly life and evangelical obedience to all the commands which Christ, as head and king in his word, has prescribed to them. All right, so we want to deal with uh, eight realities uh, from this. I want to consider, first of all, that sanctification is universal, that it is real, necessary, supernatural, active, difficult, progressive, and then victorious. All right, so that's where we want to go this morning. It is universal. And, and, and what I, I want to mean by that is this. This is not something that is true for some believers and not for others. It's not that there are some Christians who pursue holiness and some who don't. It's not that there are some Christians saved by grace who are saints and others are still going to heaven, saved by the same grace, saved by the same Christ, uh, but the Lord has done something for them, but he's done nothing in them. Now, our confession puts it again this way. They who are united to Christ, effectually called, regenerated, having a new heart and a new spirit created in them through the virtue of Christ's death, uh, and resurrection are also farther sanctified. So again, this involves every true Christian. Now, are there some Christians who are more holy than other Christians? Are there some believers who are more like Jesus than others? All right. Are, are there times in our life when we are more holy uh, than, than other times in our life? Maybe even within the same day. Uh, but often within certain periods or seasons uh, of our life. So again, there may be some Christians who are more holy in this life, but there are none who are not, to some degree, holy, and we're going to need to get into what this means, sanctified, 
there are none who are not pursuing holiness. I'm going to use this language to some discernible or real degree. The Bible says without holiness, without a pursuit of holiness, no one will see the Lord. All right, so what do we mean by holy or by sanctified? And this is interesting to consider because when we get into, well, how then can there be degrees of this and, and whatnot? But generally speaking, what do we mean when we're talking about, let's flesh this out, what does holiness or sanctification look like? So, being made more like Christ. All right, being made more like Christ. And what does that consist of, Emory? Okay. All right. That's good. But you want to flesh that out a little bit, some other aspects of it? I think he's right in saying that that's, that's ultimately what we're talking about. Christ is holy. To be holy means to be like him. And by that we mean by, by way of moral virtue. And what does that, again, what does that consist of in, in ourselves, in our life, in our pilgrimage? All right, so it looks like obedience. So part of holiness is obedience. All right, that's good. What else? All right, all right, good. All right, all right. Well, let me, let me, Han said one second ahead of you, but we'll go back. That's good. Good. All right, being conformed to God's law. Holiness in itself, in its most clear definition has to do with being set apart set apart or devoted and it's a separation from one thing and unto another thing so there were things in the bible that are inanimate that were holy do you know what i mean by that in the old testament right there are things they were inanimate a bowl a cup a fork and, and they were holy. How were they holy? Yeah, in their use. They were used. They were not common. We've talked about this in the past. If there was a special golden bowl uh, in the temple and, and you, you lived at the temple or in the tabernacle and you got holy, you didn't put your cornflakes in it. You didn't use it for anything other than the worship of God. It was set apart. That's God's. It belongs to God. And so part of what we mean in, in, in sanctification, and there is in the Bible, we try to get into this, there is a, a definite sense of sanctification, a definite sense in which we are called saints. What does it mean to be, what's the word saint mean, do you know? A holy one. So if you're a Christian, some of us say, well, we're saints, we're the saints. Not, not, not just a few Roman Catholic guys who have obtained some virtue. That we're saints. That is, we're set apart. We have been called by God, loved of God, set apart by God, called out of the world, out of darkness, into light. We've been bought by him. He owns us. We live for his honor. We live for his glory. That's part of what it means to be holy. Now, that happens in a definitive sense at our conversion. 
we are, we are set apart. And we are also given the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. There is a definitive and declarative sense in our justification where we are declared not guilty, right? And that this is the hope of our justification. Not guilty, just as if we'd never sinned, just as if we had always obeyed. That's given to us by grace through faith. It's based fully on the merit of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, so that we can stand before the Lord and will stand before the Lord holy and without blame, faultless, without condemnation. We fear no condemnation before him. But what we're getting at here is how this is then fleshed out progressively so that we are in union with Christ in that sense as, as seen in him, holy, fully accepted, blameless, faultless, no condemnation. And yet there is the reality that in this life, day by day, we wrestle, we struggle, we fail, we sin, we yield at times, other times victorious, sometimes fight and fight well, sometimes not fighting so well. Sometimes we fall into a hole, sometimes we dig a hole, right? Those are some of the realities uh, that we are dealing with. So in this progressive sense, and Jim's absolutely right here in saying this is the, the foundation of having been set apart. What does the fight generally consist of or the progress or the determinative action fleshed out to be like Christ? What does it consist of? Ted? All right. It's, yeah. So it, it, it is, on the one hand, putting off the remnants of the old man. Now, it's been a long time since we dealt with some of this theology. And, and, and there are those who question whether, is there, is there within us an old man and a new man wrestling for dominion? Or does the Bible teach us that we are new men, new creatures, with remnants of the old? You see the difference? that It is like saying that a state has been conquered or a nation conquered, and yet there's some guerrilla warfare going on. There is, there is the mop-up operation. And I think that we study everything that the Bible has to say. I think that is the preponderance of evidences in regard to that. We're, we, we're not old man, new man. We are new creatures in Christ with a new heart, a new mind. We don't have a, a, half, a heart that's half stone and half flesh. We may act like we do sometimes. We may feel a kind of Jekyll and Hyde and a kind of schizophrenia at times. But what we're getting at is this. That God has, if you, if you are a Christian, God has placed you in the fight. And the flesh is going to war against you. But if you're a Christian, there is now a disposition in which the spirit is going to fight back. That's the work of progressive sanctification. 
It's not just saying, well, thank God I am positionally holy. It's a discomfort with this sin. It's a desire to be free from it. It's a desire to conquer it. It's a desire to live in victory over these things that make us cry out at times, oh, wretched man that I am. So that's what we're, we're getting at when we talk about this. So all God's people are saints. All God's people have been cleansed from the guilt of their sins and released from the dominion of their sins. Does the Bible teach that? That you are no longer under the dominion of your sins. Sin shall not have dominion over you because you're not under law, you're under grace. Which is really interesting. I think for some Christians, they might think that that should be flipped. That if we were just under law, then we would not be under sin. That it's law that helps us to conquer sin and not grace. Grace means you can just relax. That's Again, that's the way sometimes people present things. That's not the Bible's argument. That we have been released from the dominion of our sin. That is, sin does not have lordship over us. There was a time when we gave ourselves, Paul talks about this in Romans, the instruments of our body to sin, uh, that, that sin might do as it pleased with us, that, that mastery uh, has been broken. We can now present ourselves, our eyes, our hands, our mouth, our mind, our inner person, our sexuality, whatever it is, that we can present that to God as slaves of righteousness. Now, sometimes the old master, as it were, comes back and talks to us in a way. I'm going to give a, a, it may seem like a silly illustration. But some of you know what it's like when you go, when you go home and you go back to, you go to your mom and dad's house. And you suddenly, you go back and maybe you're in your old bedroom with your, you know, maybe there's even some posters when you were in high school. And your mom says something to you. And even though you've been married for 10 years and you own a house and have a job, you're kind of like, yes, ma'am, you know. Uh, and, and, and there's an honoring sense in which you can do that. But you realize that, no, this, I have left. I have left this. They're not my boss anymore, you know, in, in this regard. And sin is no longer uh, our mastery. We have been released from the dominion of sin. If someone is not holy, it means that they're not fighting their sin. This is in the sense that we're talking about it in this chapter. And Paul tells us in Romans that if we are not putting sin to death by the Spirit, what's the result of that? It's death, right? If you, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is, this is evidence of life. If we're not pursuing that, it means that we are yet in the world and of the world, and therefore we are not the friends of God, but the enemies of God, as James teaches us. To not be pursuing holiness means that we're not walking in the light. And therefore, according to 1 John, we have no fellowship with the Father and with the Son. This is why we're saying this is universal. To not be pursuing holiness means that you call Jesus Lord, Lord, and yet do not do the things that he says. To not be pursuing holiness, as some of you have brought out, means that we are not striving to obey the commandments of God 
And John tells us in 1 John 2, 3 and 4, Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a what? It's a liar. And the truth is not in him. I mean, that's, that's strong language. But that's the language of scripture. All right, so it's universal. Secondly, it's real. And again, note, note the language of the confession that the Lord does this really and personally. Really and personally. Now, he means that in regard to, they mean that in regard to, in our own personal lives. And that there is evidence of it. That we are not just comforted, though we should be comforted by the reality of our perfect positional holiness. But that in our lives, there is evidence. There are, in the language of the scriptures, fruit, meat for repentance. In the book of Hebrews, and this is in chapter 10, I'm not going to read, I, I have down here if you want to read the whole of it later, uh, chap, uh, chapter 10, verses 5 through 10. And it talks about Christ coming to the world in a body that Christ has prepared. And you go down in verse 9, then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all that's that's the positional sanctified once for all but in that action there is the bringing about of that new covenant wherein the law of God is written on the heart and in the mind this is our active, our pursued sanctification. This is this real and personal. It's that which affects our lives, our communication, our relationships, our relationship with God, our relationship with the world, our relationship with our brethren, our relationship with unbelievers. And again, this is the emphasis. This is the great emphasis. If you <laughs> look at all the verses dealing with obedience and holiness, this is the emphasis in both the Old and New Testament. It is real. I think part of that is that it's more than theoretical. Again, before the Lord, I'm so thankful we have a pure and a perfect righteousness. But on earth, real men and real women, real young people, boys and girls, once bound by sin and marked by certain sins, by the grace of God and the complex of salvation, repent of those sins. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, know, see if you agree with this, this is, this is, well, when I say if you agree with this, just carry your conscience in the scriptures that they know regular, ongoing success in putting those sins to death. Now, I recognize some people hear that and they say, but there's an area in my life that I'm struggling in. There's an area in my life that I've battled for, for years. Does that mean that I'm not a Christian? Does that mean that the, the reign and dominion of sin has not been broken? 
I do think we need to remember that the rule and reign of, of sin in our life was not limited to one thing in our lives. And that we should take encouragement in those many areas of, of success and obedience and the putting of sin to death that we do have and to be comforted by the warfare that we're in. And again, it needs to be warfare that we're in in regard to some of those things that when the writer to the Hebrews talks about the sin that so easily besets you. Now, when he says that, I don't know. There may be some people that's, you know, I know some people that say when, when I read that, there is nothing that comes to mind. There's not one particular sin because they're fighting sin on all of these levels and, and are knowing such degrees of success but I think for many, when he says, lay aside the sin that so easily entangles you or besets, that, that people go, yeah, I, I, I've got one like that or I've got two like that. Listen to how our confession explains what happens in the life of a true Christian. We glory in the cross. We're glorying in the Christ person, his work, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his intercession. That's the ground of our hope. That's what the gospel focuses on. But by that same virtue, by that, that, that risen Christ who came to save us from our sins, remember it is said in Matthew chapter 1, to save us from our sins, save us from the penalty of sin, to save us from the power of sin, and to save us ultimately from the presence of sin. By that same virtue, by his word and spirit dwelling in them. So this is not just bootstrap it. Now, I don't want to denigrate that. I do think there is an element in which we need to talk to ourselves and preach to ourselves and encourage ourselves as we are facing a certain thing and say to ourselves, get up, say no, close the door, whatever it is that you're tempted to open up or that you have opened up and you're tempted to walk through it to say, stop. Now, that's not just bootstrapping, I'm, I'm, but when I say bootstrapping, that's without the spirit, without the word, without just fully on your own strength. I, but I do think there needs to be within us this holy determination to fight and to be at war. By his word and spirit dwelling in them, the dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed. So he says that on the one hand, and then, he, then they say this, and the several lusts of it are more and more weakened and mortified. Again, that's not all they're going to say about this. And they are more and more quickened and strengthened in all saving graces to the practice of all true holiness. As Ted said, putting off, and putting on. It's not just putting off. It's not just saying, well, I used to do this and, and now I no longer do. Right? But are there new things that have come, new affections, new obedience that has come in this place? As we talked about, I think, just a couple of weeks ago, that, that statement, the uh, expulsive power of a new affection, that the old needs to be replaced. You can't just carve things out of your life and, and have a soul full of holes. You have to fill it with something else, lest, again, having swept the house clean, seven demons come in who are worse than before. 
Sanctification is not merely a matter of the negative. It used to be an old statement that was popular among Baptists. Don't drink, don't dance, don't chew, and don't go out with girls who do. And, and I, I call that dog holiness. And that my dog doesn't, well, she does dance. Again, I, have to get, <laughs> I keep forgetting that when I say it. But she doesn't smoke and, and she doesn't chew tobacco and, and she doesn't look at bad things. She doesn't get online and, 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 and look up bad websites and, and all of those things. She doesn't watch movies that she doesn't, she doesn't listen to songs that she shouldn't, you know. And if that's all that holiness consists of is, is all the don'ts, but she doesn't love God. She doesn't want to be like Jesus. She doesn't have a, a heartfelt love of the brethren in the sense that God's people do. And so this sanctification, this practical outworking of it, is the recognition that in conversion, God has broken the back of our love of sin. Uh, we will sing it times. One of our hymns says, take away our love of sinning. It's a, it's a sad reality that, I don't know, do all of you sing that when we sing that? Or do you say, like, I'm not going to sing that because I don't have any love of sinning. There's no area of my life where I have any love of sinning. Well, there's some recognition of that. That though the body of, of, of sin, its back has been broken, that there's still those areas of mop-up, those guerrilla warfare that we fight against, but also God produces within us this desire of positive obedience. Putting all of those things into practice that we see and know to be the will of God. And there is that reference here, again, to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, the pursuit of holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. And so we read, and so the saints grow in grace, perfecting holiness in the fear of God, pressing after a heavenly life. I talked about that, setting our minds on things above, a heart for God's word, a heart for God's worship, a heart for God's people, a, a love for the lost that comes in that wasn't there before. And brethren, I know sometimes we're discouraged by how strong the guerrilla warfare is. But we should also be encouraged that there are desires that were never there before. There's a love and a, a, and a mercy, a, a kindness, a love, joy, and peace, a, a patience and a kindness and a gentleness and a faithfulness and a self-control that wasn't there outside of Christ. We press after heavenly life and evangelical obedience to all the commands which Christ as head and king and his word has prescribed for them. That is, that we will know real help in growing in grace and becoming more and more like Christ. It's real, it's actual, it's observable. We should be able to see it in our lives. Others should be able to see it in our lives as well. I do believe there is a sense in which you can see holiness. And I think there's a sense in which you can hear holiness. That is, there are lips that have been touched by the grace of God because the heart's been touched by the grace of God. All right, thirdly, it is necessary. So I've already touched on this. I'm just going to go through this relatively quickly. It's necessary for the assurance of our salvation. I think some years ago in my notes, I said something. I said it's necessary for our salvation. 
And I certainly know what I meant by that, but I, I, but I want to be very careful in drawing these lines and these distinctions. I realize it can sound like spiritual double talk to say that it does not save you on the one hand and that you're not saved without it on the other. Well, how can that be? How can it be that, well, it's not what saves me, but if I don't have it, I'm not saved. Justification and real and then progressive sanctification are in this way inseparable. They are distinct. One is not the other. You are not justified by your pursuit of holiness. But in this sense, and I think this is the argument of James, your justification is justified by this pursuit. That is, because again, that, that is an invisible work, and we say, I believe that, that by the declaration of, of God's a courtroom that I am uh, free and, and, uh, and I am under no condemnation. But sometimes you want to know, did that really happen? Because I don't want to be one of those who stands before the Lord and says, Lord, Lord, and not enter the kingdom of heaven. I'm told in the scriptures not to be deceived. I'm told in the scriptures to examine myself. And part of that will point me again, am I looking to Christ? Am I trusting in Christ? Am I trusting in my own righteousness? But also... Has there come with my new life in Christ evidence that I am a new creature? Our sanctification, again, will not save us, but it can and does properly understood comfort us that we are saved. So Hebrews 12, 14 again says, Pursue peace with all and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Again, it's a pursuit. It's not just our, uh, our, our declaration of, of holiness and union with Christ. It's a pursuit just as the pursuit of peace with all men is. First Peter 1 and verse 5, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. These, these are encouragements to us that God has done a new work in us. And then I want us to consider, fourthly, that it is supernatural. It's supernatural in how it is begun, and it is supernatural in how it is carried out. They who are united to Christ effectually called and regenerated, having a new heart and a new spirit created in them through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection, are also farther sanctified, really and personally, through that same virtue, by his word and spirit dwelling in them. By the word and spirit, rooted in the saving work of Jesus Christ for us. Again, if there is a particular area where you are regularly struggling, regularly failing. And it's troubling you. It's causing you to question perhaps whether you are in a state of grace. Yes, I do want to encourage you to be stirred up, to say more and more no to that. The child of God, not merely in your own strength or not in your, not looking to yourself and not looking first and foremost to 
a lot of worldly solutions. We are children of God. We have the word and we have the spirit. The, the very spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead dwells in us. We have God on our side. If God is for us, then who can be against us? He is with you and he is for you. No temptation has taken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful and will provide a way of escape so that you can endure it. We go to the word to see what is sin and what's virtuous. We don't just go to culture, right? Particularly boy, try to go to culture to decide what that is. We go to the word. Holiness is exegeted. We need the spirit of God to help us in our understanding and in its practical application. There are things to put off. Are we making provision for the flesh? Make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. The apostle Paul says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. So there are organizations out there, even secular ones, that will try to help you to make no provision for the flesh. How to conquer your flesh, how to conquer your appetites, how to be more physically fit, how to overcome porn. But none of them start with, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to encourage ourselves in this. That we are not just helpless victims of the devil. We are beloved of God. We have his word and his spirit to help us and aid us. We have the body of Christ to come alongside us. We have brethren who will cheer us on and help us in the fight. Now again, there are things that people can and do change. I'm not going to say that they do it (coughs) without God's help. But they do it without consciously seeking the help of God. I believe every drunk who has ever been able to give up drink owes honor and glory to God. And some of them will say, God didn't do this, I did it. And you're like, well, dude, you can't even breathe without God. You can't swallow without God. So everything you do, ultimately, God is is helping. But they are not consciously doing it. There are those who change their lives even based on religion. There are Muslims. People convert to Islam. They change their life in certain ways. It may be a philosophy or a relationship. So a man may give up drink because he's got a baby that's come or a woman stops having multiple partners because she became a Mormon. That's not Christian sanctification. For us, we need to go into recognizing that this is by the word and by the spirit. I think I'm going to stop there, and we'll pick up the, uh, the, the active, difficult, progressive, and victorious nature of it uh, next time. Uh, but, but, I, but I really do want to encourage us, brethren. There, there, there is among far too many believers <coughs> an alarming passivity. And at times, when, and I hesitate sometimes to say in your fight or in your warfare with sin. Rolling over and exposing your neck is not fighting. That's not struggle. That's surrender. 
when, this, when the flesh lusts against us, we have to fight back. So I used an illustration a few years ago. Some of you will remember this. I'm going to go back to my dogs. So uh, I had my wonderful dog, Colonel Rupert. I love good old fat, sweet, passive Colonel Rupert. I now have the world's most hyper dog. Uh, lean, mean, muscular. We go to the dog park. Rupert would see another dog. If that other dog said anything like, I'm going to try to be an alpha dog, Rupert would go, yeah, you got it. I, that's not me. I, uh, I, if you need to kill me, uh, you can just kill me. Uh, I, I'm... Adrian, on the other hand, she'll take on a, she'll take on a great, she, she's about 40 pounds, comes up to my knee, I've seen Great Danes step on her trying to keep her down because she's got fight in her. And brethren, Rupert was not a fighter. And the Christian who, when they face temptation, says, oh, well, there's nothing I can do. It's too overwhelming. We're, we're doubting the promises of God. And we're not laying hold of the resources that belong to us in Christ. That, that, that may be a, whatever that is, some loss, some desire to hate, to giving your heart and mind over to things that aren't true or pursuing worthless things or saying something you know you ought not to say and you're there and, and yielding to a fear that you ought not to yield to, whatever the case may be, to trust that God can give to us the ability that when the flesh is fighting, that by the Spirit we fight back. But brethren, it's by the Spirit. It's because a new work has been done and begun in us by the person and work of Jesus Christ. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to bless these things to our hearts. We do thank you, Heavenly Father, for the comfort that comes with the knowledge that one day uh, there will be a victory that comes to us. We do thank you, Heavenly Father, that where sin abounds, grace did much more abound. And Father, we thank you that you have revealed your truth unto the end that we not sin. But Father, if we do sin, and when we have sinned, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Lord, may we honor his person and his work as we celebrate afresh his resurrection from the dead. We ask these things in his matchless name. Amen.